3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and the Bungaran people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay respect to Elders, past, present and extended respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience all listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and the treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children aged 3 and 4 can access 15 hours per week of free kinder. Kinder programs provide culturally safe places for children and families and are led by qualified teachers. Enrol for 2024. Speak with your preferred kinder service or local council today about how to register for a place. Corey Kids Shine at Kindergarten. Find out more at vic.gov.au forward slash kinder. Authorised by the Victorian Government Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Good morning. This Wednesday morning, the 11th of October. Claudia, how are we this morning? Very well. How are you, Pat? Yeah, not bad. And uh, Sonera, how are you? Good, yes. Um, we're all good. All good? All good. Yeah. It's going to be a nice warm day today. So listeners, I highly recommend to get out and about in Melbourne today. Bright sunshine <laughs> for the day the after one. being... Yeah, I know. After some really cold and chilly weather last week where uh, there was there was no cricket to speak of and uh, a lot of uh, looking at water for a long time, I think. And I think there's more rain to yeah, come. Yeah, don't, don't, don't mention that to me, Claudia. <laughs> <laughs> but enjoy, enjoy today, yes. Um so, yeah, we're going to come to our rundown in, the mo- in a moment, but um, just to for- foreground the show, shall I put it like that, uh, we'll be focusing on the upcoming referendum today uh, with only a couple of days to go now. What is it? Less than three days. Saturday morning, photos will be uh, out at the polls, at, at the uh, polling booths at 8am. And uh, today we'll do our final coverage leading up to that uh, with a focus on hearing diverse voices. Um, so, Pat, do you want to let listeners know what is coming up? Yes. Yeah, so uh, at the top of the show, we'll be uh, listening to a speeches uh, for the National Action to, Sto- to Stop Black Deaths in Custody. Uh, then I will be speaking to uh, Charles Sturt of School Information and Communication Studies, Jock Cheatham, about the impact of the Trumpism tactics around the no voice. Uh, then yourself, Claudia and Grace, she'll be on the show as well, speaking to Dr. Fan Yang uh, at, from the University of Melbourne, discussing uh, the... Uh, WeChat, how WeChat is facilitating information about the voice referendum to the Australian Chinese community and whether this group of listeners are listening. And Sonera, you'll be uh, speaking to da- Dr. Daniel uh, Featherstone, uh, a research fellow at RMIT University, about remote First Nations communities uh, among the most digitally excluded in Australia, which is quite incredible. Uh, so it's going to be a big show today. Yes, um, lots of variety even though we're focusing on the voice and I think that's really important. Okay 
So let's start off with some headlines um, to first to important news outside Australia. Yes. So to start off, um, so there's some updates on the Israel-Palestine conflict. Hamas has attacked the Israeli city of Ashkelon with rocket fire after warning residents to leave. And so far, it's been reported that the death toll from the Hamas attack on Israel on Saturday has risen to over 900, which led Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu declaring war on Hamas. Since then, over 700 people have been killed in the Gaza Strip by Israel's retaliatory strikes, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry. On Monday, Israel has also ordered a complete siege of the Gaza Strip, meaning that no electricity, food, water or fuel would be allowed into Gaza, while Hamas threatened to respond by executing hostages. And meanwhile in Iran, Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei denied involvement behind the Hamas attack. However, Khamenei did not back down on praising the militant group in his first televised speech since the weekend attack, hailing what he calls Israel's irreparable military and intelligence defeat. On Monday, the US claimed Iran was complicit in the Hamas attack on Israel, though it said it had no intelligence or evidence pointing to Tehran's direct participation. And back at home, hundreds of protesters marched in solidarity with Palestinians at the Sydney Opera House. However, police are investigating the protests after footage emerged of a small group appearing to chant anti-Semitic slogans. On uh, one of the organizations of the protest, Fahad Ali condemned the anti-Semitic remarks by protesters on Twitter last night. In Melbourne, there will be a rally to support Palestine at the State Library on Sunday afternoon, organised by the group Free Palestine Melbourne. And according to International Monetary Fund, Australia has the highest level of mortgage stress, with 15% of incomes dedicated to paying off loans. Borrowers are met with continuous rate increases by the Reserve Bank of Australia since May last year, which has continued for eight months in a row when the IMF compiled their figures. Another four rate rises since December are likely to have pushed Australia's exposure to debts even further with the cash rate now at 4.1%. Inflation has started to weaken around the world but most countries, including Australia, were not expected to have it back within target until 2025. And to local news, industrial action against employer Dulux continued on Monday with workers at B&D Doors striking in a call for better wages. Monday's action took place at the Dulux head office in Clayton and was the 13th consecutive day of 24-hour strikes. Members of the Australian Manufacturers Workers Union are seeking a wage outcome of at least 12% over three years with a sign-on bonus. The company has not moved from 9% over three years, which was their initial offer over six months ago. And a cyber attack on the private email account of a staff member at Melbourne's Royal Women's Hospital has put the data of more than 190 patients of the hospital at risk. 
According to the hospital, the employee had forwarded work emails to their private email account in an effort to review and coordinate their patient appointments and care approaches when the attack occurred. The hospital highlighted that its record system was not affected, but nevertheless is thoroughly investigating the attack and has put in place actions to ensure that affected patients receive accurate information and adequate support. It has established a hotline number for affected patients where they can connect with cyber experts for detailed advice and support as well as free counselling services. Monash University cybersecurity expert Professor Monica Witte said the case demonstrates that workplaces need to develop policies and secure technology that understands and acknowledges how employees behave while accessing their organisation's online networks. And UEFA has postponed soccer matches in Israel due to the ongoing conflict. UEFA said in a statement, in light of the current security situation in Israel, UEFA has decided to postpone all matches scheduled in Israel in the next couple of weeks with new, na- with new dates to be confirmed in due course. The matches affected included Thursday's Euro 2024 qualifier between Israel and Switzerland, as well as Israel's Euro Under-21 championship matches against Estonia and Germany. A mini-tournament scheduled from October 10th to 17th involving under-17 teams from Israel, Belgium, Gibraltar and Wales was also postponed as well. Another Euro 2024 qualifying match between Israel and Kosovo, scheduled for October 15th, may also be postponed. UEFA warned, adding they'll they'll wait a few more days to decide. In a following update, UEFA will continue to, monitor, to closely monitor the situation and will remain in contact with all teams involved before making decisions on new dates and on potential changes to upcoming fixtures. And those are the and those are the headlines for your Wednesday. And we'd like to express our condolences and thoughts with anyone who has family or friends affected by the conflict in Israel Gaza at the moment. Um, acknowledging that it's a dreadful situation Mm. and, yeah, everyone is in our thoughts. So if you're listening and you're affected by this, um, yeah, we're thinking of you. We're going to go to a song now. This is Long Live Palestine by Low Key. This is for Palestine, Ramallah, West Bank, Gaza This is for the child that is searching for an answer Wish I could take your tears and replace them with laughter Long live Palestine, long live Gaza Palestine, Ramallah, West Bank, Gaza This is for the child that is searching for an answer Wish I could take your tears and replace them with laughter Long live Palestine while we listen to tunes made by ignorant fools Israel blocked the UN from delivering food They bring in the troops and you won't even glimpse of the news They make money off the products that we're quick to consume And it's not simply a question of differing views Forget emotions, this is facts, what I spit is the truth Makes no difference if you're a Christian or if you're a Jew They're just people living in different conditions to you They still die when you bomb their schools Mosques and hospitals, it's not because of rockets Please God, can you stop this all? I'm not related to the strangers on the TV, but I relate, cause those strangers could have been me, words can never ever explain the raw tragedy, it's not a war, they're just murdering more rapidly, and we are automatically supporting pure savagery, imagine how you feel if this was your family. 
chains in my heart forever We stand for peace, times of war We shan't surrender, remember It didn't start in this dark December Every coin is a bullet if you're Marks and Spencer And when you're sipping Coca-Cola That's another pistol in the holster of them soulless soldiers You say you know about the Zionist lobby But you put money in their pocket when you're buying their coffee Talking about revolution sitting in Starbucks The fact is, that's the type of thinking I can't trust Let alone even start to respect before you talk Learn the meaning of that scarf on your neck Forget Nestle, Obama Promise Israel 30 billion over the next decade They're trigger happy and they're crazy Think about that when you're putting Huggies nappies on your baby Just a war over stolen land Why do you think little boys are throwing stones at tanks? And we'll never really know how many people are dead They drop bombs on innocent girls while they sleep in their bed Don't get offended by facts, just try and listen Nothing is more anti-Semitic than Zionism So please don't bring bad vibes when you speak to me There's plenty of rabbis that agree with me It's your choice what you do with this message Don't get it confused, I view this from a human perspective How many more resolutions have to be violated? How many more children have to be annihilated? Israel is a terror state, they're terrorists that terrorise I testify my television, televise them telling lies This is not a war, it is systematic Genocide, but whatever they try, Palestine will never die. West Bank, Gaza This is for the child that is searching for an answer Wish I could take your tears and replace them with laughter Long live Palestine, long live Gaza Palestine, Ramallah, West Bank, Gaza This is for the child that is searching for an answer Wish I could take your tears and replace them with laughter Long live Palestine, long live Gaza And that was Long Live Palestine by Low Key on Saturday, the National Action to Stop Black Deaths in Custody took place with rallies held in capital cities around the country. In Nam, several hundred gathered at the steps of the State Library, many carrying boards bearing the names and faces of loved ones lost in custody. The event was organised by the Black Sovereign Movement and called for the government to implement outstanding recommendations from the 1991 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. 3CR was on site to capture the action and we're going to share a couple of the speeches now. The first voice you'll hear is 3CR's Robbie Thorpe setting the scene for the event. Then we'll hear from Yorta Yorta Man, Jason Tamaru and Wurundjeri Elder, Ringo Terrick. Let's take a listen. Good afternoon everyone. This is Robbie Thorpe here. I'm down at the uh, State Library in the shadows of the, the monument. Redmond Barry on the steps of the State State Library and um, we've got a gathering of about four to five hundred people here it's like a bit of a, a cross of some old young 
staunch young people. Um, I think it's well attended for a Saturday. And um, so if you're thinking about coming down, I suppose it'll be going for another hour or two. So get down there. It looks like a good line-up of speech, speakers. And um, see how you can get involved. For another reason, for our people, our culture goes back thousands of years, right back to the beginning of time. That's our law, that's our story. I acknowledge all the old people, all our ancestors, the spirit walkers of this country. I acknowledge their children. I acknowledge the law. All the tribes, all the nations, all the diversity, everything in this country. of our culture, it's part of our law, when we walk on country, when we visit our people on different parts of this land, do we follow the customs and the beliefs of the law of the country? This place has got many, many nations, and I acknowledge all of them. I manage all the clans, all the tribes, everyone. This country where we gather today is not Melbourne. It's called Nam. This land, this country right here, the tracks of the feet have been here for thousands of years. No bitumen, no tram. No state library, no law, no one can discredit that. We follow the tracks to the old story. This land is Warringeri country. Say it. Warringeri country. Say it. Warringeri country. Say it. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land. We thank them very much for this gathering today. And um, I'll talk more a bit later. All right, thanks everybody for coming out today. Up next, talking, we've got Uncle Ringo Terrick, local Wurundjeri elder, 
I'm going to come up, give a welcome to country. Got a smoking on down the front here. Try and cleanse this energy, all this negative energy that this colony puts on us. Thanks to Uncle Jason as well, helping out with the fire area. Appreciate it, Uncle. So thank you for joining us today, folks. We really ap appreciate your attendance and your support here today. For one of the most significant issues we continue to face as, as uh, the first custodians of this land. Ancestors appreciate your support. Every black death in custody is an ancestor. And as we gather here today, it's customary in these types of gatherings to simply light the fire and send the smoke out over the land to cleanse and to bless this beautiful space today here on the land of my ancestors. I'm a proud Wurundjeri Wurrung man and I'm so happy and proud to stand here amongst my comrades to represent my people and all our people on the most amazing country on earth. For me, the most amazing place of this most amazing country is right here on my traditional homelands, where we continue to assert our sovereignty as sovereigns of this beautiful land the most ancient landscape on earth, amongst the oldest surviving living culture on earth. I've been through the institutions since I was a child down at Parkville and as a ward of the state of Victoria, me and Uncle Teljum here standing right next to me. And these men, Robbie Thorpe and Jason, and my Southern Warriors comrade here, Andrew Giles. We continue to fight the good fight. We, con we continue to speak our truth and the truth of those that can't be with us today who are depicted on the posters today. We honour you today. We honour our land and we honour our community. I pay my respects to you all. I pay my respects to all elders here present today. I pay my respects to those families of the fallen that we represent today. So many of the men and women that I grew up in, just in my generation, are no longer here. So many people that I went through the institutions are no longer here. The ones that left the biggest mark on me, the ones that I had close and personal familial relationships, being Tanya Day, Veronica Nelson, and others still have such a profound impact on my life and on my journey moving forward. So much more 
could have been done in those moments and in those instances where there was a lack of care and concern for someone who may not have been sober, for someone that was not well and they didn't receive the proper care, medical care and attention in that moment in time. So much of this could have been prevented if people just took the time to care more for these amazing Aboriginal women. I'm going to take the opportunity to extend this welcome to country to you guys here today because just through your attendance, it's such a big demonstration of your respect and your commitment and to having our backs here today. So I'd just like to say, acknowledge our neighbours, the Tunnerong to the north, Uncle Taljum's people, the Gunnar Kurnai to the east, southeast, mine and Lydia Thorpe's people, Robbie, Bungalini, the Wadarong people to the west, our boundaries extend to the Werribee River and down to the south to the Mordialic River of the Bunurong Bunurong people. I acknowledge and pay my respects to your elders here today. I'd like to, you know, mention Lydia here today as she's our voice in Parliament. She's our staunch queen in Parliament. We've had many voices over the years, ladies and gentlemen, to the Parliament. And is this voice going to be just another voice that's heard but never listened to? Yeah? What do you say? So many of the recommendations of the Closing to Gap, Closing the Gap initiatives and recommendations had not been fulfilled up to the present moment. Only a handful of those recommendations had been fulfilled. And we continue to wait on the promises and the commitments of successive governments over the, over the years to give us what we need, an equal standing in this land, our land, the land that's never been ceded, the land of all Aboriginal people and my elders. We've put up with the massacres. We've, took, we've put up with the constant removal of our children from our families. We continue to tolerate the overrepresentation of young Aboriginal men and women in the legal justice system and in the custodial places of this land. We've had enough. Will the voice to Parliament put an end to all this? We know the wheels of progress move slowly, but we know 
that the cogs of the parliament move even more slowly. I don't know how many more lives are going to be lost to these present processes that are in place. They're willing to hurry this voice to parliament and the referendum, but they don't hurry anything else much more for Aboriginal people. So I thank you for your attendance today, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for your passion, your commitment, and your support and your love and care and concern and acknowledgement of the First Nations people of this land. And on behalf of my elders and the entire Wurundjeri community and indeed the entire Nam Aboriginal community, I'd like to welcome you in language and say, Wamanjiga, Yemakundibik Balik Nam, Mimini Dulagas, which translates to welcome to this beautiful land of ours today, ladies and gentlemen, and a particular big warm welcome to this wonderful lady standing next to me, Miss Lydia Thorpe. We love her dearly. Thank you so much. Woman Giga. And that was some of the action from the NAM Stop Black Deaths in Custody rally organised by the Black Sovereign Movement, which took place nationally on Saturday, October the 7th. The speeches you heard were by Yorta Yorta man Jason Tamaru and Wurundjeri elder Ringo Terrick, with the broadcast being introduced by our own Robbie Thorpe. Hopefully you'll hear some more of the speeches across the week on 3CR programs. And you can join the online petition calling for full implementation of the Royal Commission recommendations to stop Indigenous deaths in custody by going to the Black Sovereign Movement website and clicking on Deaths in Custody petition tab in the menu. We'll put the link in our show notes. And of course, you can catch Robbie Thorpe on the mic here at 3CR on Wednesdays and Fridays. We're going to go to a segment now with Patrick Morrow talking about the voice and Trumpian politics. Yes, thanks very much, Claudia. So I'm going to be joined now by the Senior Lecturer in News and Media in the Charles Sturt School of Information and Communication Studies, Jock Cheatham, uh, to discuss uh, Trumpian tactics in the Voice to Parliament referendum. Uh, Jock, good morning. Hello there, Patrick. How are you going this morning? Oh, great, thanks. Very good, very good to hear. And um, what do you, you've described, um, we've entered the era of post-truth politics during the Voice to Parliament referendum campaign. What, what do you mean of this, Jock? Well, if people think back to the Trump election where he actually won in 2016, uh, you'll remember he introduced the uh, fake news idea into popular parlance. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, he was accusing the mainstream media of lying. But as we know, throughout his presidency, he told tens of thousands of lies as established by fact-checkers. Um, and so we, we're aware that the Trump presidency was a, a kind of a post-truth era, but it wasn't happening in the same way in Australia. Um, the other reference point in the past as well and overseas is the Brexit campaign in Britain where they voted to leave the European Union and that also contained a lot of 
misinformation, uh, lies and distortions to achieve uh, a result, a political outcome for one side. Now, what's happened in Australia is that both those tactics and that kind of way of being, if you like, has entered the political discourse in this referendum discussion that we've been having this year. So it's a, it's a big change, as I see it, to the way that discussion occurs in Australia uh, on these important matters from, from what it was before, which was relatively balanced, to uh, now, which I think we've seen so much misinformation that we've entered a, a new era and a new way of operating. Yeah, what type of misinformation are we seeing, uh, Jock? It's it's something I find fascinating. I'm I'm keeping up with this on the social side of things when it comes to it, but I just like to know what type of misinformation are we seeing from the Voice? Well, there's actually a variety of it, and social media is where a lot of it's happening, Patrick. Yeah. So some of it's coming out straight from the No campaign, and other of it is being amplified in social media. But an example of that would be particular arguments that are put up or or misstatements that are made, such as the voice is a treaty by another name. Mm. So there's places uh, such as the RMIT Fact Lab and also the Newswire AAP Fact Check, which have actually addressed these specific questions. And um, another one is... Uh, that the federal government is bankrolling the Yes campaign, mm. <laughs> again, which is not true. There's actually a whole list of, of these, and, and it's a very long list. So that's two examples. Yeah. That's um, quite concerning that we're, we're seeing that misinformation um, getting spread around so so rapidly. It's, it's, it's quite concerning. Something I found interesting as well is that there has also been reported that younger people uh, are, are looking to vote no due to the information they see on TikTok. I would have thought it would be the opposite there, Jock. Why do you think it is? Yeah, that's, a, that's a, it's certainly a change that's occurred this year. I think one of the things about... TikTok is that it's a lot less, um, first of all, it's probably less um, monitored by the platform itself in terms of the information that gets put out there. So Facebook, for example, has a process, and it's it's a mild process, but it does do an, a little bit of oversight of misinformation mm. that occurs. But as far as I'm aware, there's there's little or none on, on TikTok. So that's that's one thing. Um, but having said that, there's still plenty of misinformation on, on Facebook. Um, but the other thing about um, TikTok, um, apart from it being a very youth-oriented platform, um, and I suppose that's important in terms of, of reaching the youth, but um, it's, it's uh, been really harnessed by the No campaign. Mm. So um, the Yes campaign, for some reason... Is, is a very late adopter getting onto TikTok with effective messages, and that includes all the supporters as well as the official campaign, whereas the No campaign has been very deliberate about it. And if you go to the No campaign's TikTok feed and you just look at, at, the, at the flow of their stories, you see a, a, a consistent message that they've put out that um, Indigenous Australians are against the voice mm. and 
you see that with a whole variety of, of different people, not just uh, Jacinta Price and Warren Mundine, but also including them very prominently. But then you have some other people who's, who um, from around the country who they've found who don't support the voice. And it gives the impression um, of a strong... Um, indigenous anti-voice sentiment, and it's just not clear that that is actually the case. So that's not necessarily misinformation, but it's a very effective use of social media in that particular case. Yeah, definitely. It's a bit like manipulation in, in the best sense. I'm just thinking there's a video going around of the Prime Minister, Anthony, Anthony Albanese, if I re- recall, it had the uh, weird uh, conspiracy theory music to it, Jock, and it said something like, listen to what Anthony Albanese said. I'm not going to try and do an American accent, but that's the best way of, best way of putting it. And I think it was, it was really misquoting uh, the Prime Minister on what he was discussing with The Voice. Uh, as we know, the Prime Minister is, a, is a, uh, supporting the yes side of the campaign on that space. Where, where do you see it going with that? Do you, do you see campaigns in the future having more of this situation where we, we have this out-of-context quotes and manipulation in, and, and almost down-the-rabbit-hole um, way of campaigning? Yes, I do, actually, Patrick. I think that is part of the concern about entering the post-truth era is you can have anything from kind of deep fakes where people are kind of quoted or, or, you know, manipulated via software into appearing to say something that they don't. Or you could have something that you can always have done for, for you know, forever, really, for 50 years of, of just manipulating film. So you, you put one question to somebody and then you put a different answer uh, to that question to, to the one that actually occurred. And, you know, that's why that's something that good journalism obviously doesn't do and one of the reasons that, that journalism should be a, um, an antidote to misinformation. And I, I, you note that, unfortunately, I have to say good journalism. But can I just give a quick example of what you're talking about? Yeah. A no-campaign a no TikTok actually asked a question um, that was put on TV on the project um, of Anthony Albanese in its little video on TikTok. Mm. And then it had a, a response from Albanese, which was not the response it gave. So it gave Albanese kind of staring as if he couldn't give an answer to the question about the detail on the voice or something like that. Yeah. And he actually did answer the question directly in the actual um transcript and on the TV program. So that is an example of a complete fabrication of what actually happened. And that actually came out from the official uh, side of the No campaign, not something from some sort of random person on the internet sort mm. of thing. And, and you know, I think that kind of um, specifically, you know, that's a, that's a lie. Um, it's 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 skating into the lying territory. I think that the danger is the more we have of that, especially on social media, in say, for example, future uh, political campaigns, elections, um, so on. The more at risk we are of our whole national conversation or even local, any conversations we have publicly spinning out of control and just becoming um, no longer based on reality.
Yeah, it's it seems like that, and it's a perfect way of putting it, Jock. in in terms of in terms of that, do you think that we could have a situation where it could be between reality versus non-reality campaigning in in the space in the next you know ten years? Well, I think sooner than that. I think from now on, um, given how obviously effective misinformation and disinformation has been, I think that we are already in that space and that all the next elections are at risk, particularly the federal ones, but I can't see any reason that state ones won't be the same and even potentially local council ones if people have the resources to to do this method. Um, will be seeing this kind of um, misrepresentation. So I think what I think, and this is obviously it's hard to tell the future, but the kind of things that I anticipate would be um, big lies from one side about what the other side are going to do. And the bigger the lie, the more... um, angry people get and the less um, and outraged and the more emotional and the less they might consider um, fact-checking before they share it. And then that lie just spreads and um, the hope is from the misinformers that some of that um, lie will stick, even if perhaps later there's some correction. But, you know, by the time it's spread all over the place, um, not everyone's going to hear the correction and some people are just going to believe uh, what they see anyway. Yeah, definitely. As we saw with the the, the Trump um, um, situation that's occurred and that sad event that happened on January six, that's 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 probably fueled by lies and um, <clears throat> excuse me. It, it just shows you what could happen if you allow this to continue and spread. Do Do you think we could have a situation where we could have a, a very similar figure um, in 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 politics in Australia in the future of a, of a Trump like figure? Well, I think Peter Dutton is a Trump-like figure, except that he's unpopular. Um, So I think, you know, with some of the rhetoric we've had from Peter Dutton this year has been Trump-esque. Some of the tactics, or many of the tactics, have been Trumpian. But what he doesn't have is really any charisma. (laughs) He has some of the strongman kind of, you know, head kicker... um, stuff that Trump has um, in the sense that, you know, he comes in hard and and cruel and and Trump does that too. Um, However, I can't see any of the, um, you know, crowd rallying, the kind of popular touch that Trump had on TV from Dutton. So can the, um, I suppose, the Liberal Party throw up um, someone like that? I'm not sure that I can see anyone who's currently there, although it's theoretically possible. Um, But although um, you'd have to wonder about Jacinta Price and whether she has that sort of potential, um, of of course, she's more um, from the national side, so very unlikely to be a leader of the coalition or a potential prime minister, Mm. um, the way things stand. Um, But certainly she has shown herself to have some... Um, some charisma and some force to sort of cut through with a message. Um, but, you know, I think it would be speculative uh, to say any more than that. Yeah, definitely. It'd be interesting to see in the in the coming weeks uh, and years to come what goes on there, given what will happen out of the campaign 
over the weekend. Just to finish off, Jock, where can we see all your work? And also, um, for listeners, where can they go if they want to check out the facts uh, for the voice referendum? Yeah, I think um, if you want to do fact-checking type of things, I think it would be good to Google RMIT um, Fact Lab, and you can also Google AAP Fact Check as well. And for me, you can just Google um, Jock Cheatham CSU misinformation and um, you'll be able to find my... and maybe voice, throw in the voice there. Um, and um, also in general, I think, you know, in terms of the voice, um, just go- if you Google voice referendum, um, you'll get some good... Um, you'll get some good information if you're careful about your sources. Perfect, Jock. Thanks very much. I really appreciate it, and uh, that's great advice for all our listeners. Thanks, Patrick. See ya. Perfect. That was Jock Cheatham there, the uh, Charles Sturt School of Information and Communications Studies professor, discussing the impact of Trumpian tactics in the voice to parliament referendum. And if you want to check all that, that out, we'll put it in the show notes for you because they're super important. Claudia. And we're going to go to a song now. This is Are You From T.I. by the Mills Sisters. Are you from Taurus, Fred, or any 
Gecko's turning 30 and we're having a party. The Goongra Environment Centre has been fighting to protect East Gippsland's forest since 1993 and we want to party with you. There'll be music, performances, food, drink, old friends and new friends. What better way to celebrate the end of native forest logging in Victoria? From December 1st to the 3rd in Goongra, East Gippsland. To find out more, go to gecko.org.au. Gecko, 30 years fighting for forests. Get down to the party. Celebrate with us. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, and the song from before was Are You From T.I. but the Mule Sisters. Our next guest is Dr. Fan Yang, who is a research fellow at the Melbourne Law School and ARC Centre of Excellence for Automated Decision Making and Society. Dr. Yang's key study areas are technology, migration politics, and post-colonialism. Recently, she authored an article published in a conversation about Chinese-Australians' engagement in online information about the voice referendum. Dr. Yang asserts that while the government and the yes and no campaigns are translating some information into Chinese, very little is gaining traction in the Chinese-Australian online community. She joins us now to tell us more about what information is being provided online to the Chinese-Australian population in relation to the voice and why so little seems to be resonating. Good morning, Dr. Yang. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. good. I just had my coffee That's at amazing. a very unusual time. Yeah, it is quite early in the morning. Uh, so, Dr. Young, before we dive into the information on the WeChat section that you wrote in the article, can you first tell us about the diversity of the Chinese-Australian community who will be voting on this Saturday? Um, so, I think that um, Chinese communities is always diverse, but we always describe Chinese community in the, you know, umbrella term, Chinese community. Um, and also, there is a small percentage, well, I guess, comparatively speaking, uh, the majority of the so-called Chinese migrants here in Australia, they hold temporary visa or permanent residencies, which means they are not able to vote or they're not able to, you know, effectively um, participate in the voice referendum in any other form of political event. Mm. Uh, but their voices are very important and their voices are quite... Um, their voices are on rise on WeChat and also other Chinese social media platforms, for example, Red, um, Xiaohongshu. And those mm. voices are capable of influencing votes for people who can actually vote. Mm, I see. And so with your focus, it's actually related to the online information about the voice referendum. It, 
Uh, also, are, the, are there any other apps and platforms that Chinese Australian community typically use to access the information? And yeah, with with that, basically. Yeah, um, actually, I should probably add that um, Chinese communities are very diverse in terms of class division, in terms of economic, social background, and as an education background. And also people have different levels of um, literacy in terms of understanding Indigenous affairs mm. or in terms of understanding, um, in terms of being willing to understand what is going on in the um, political landscape in Australia. So back to your next question um, in terms of media sources. There are multiple sources where Chinese migrants consume information and news. Um, according to research done by Lowe Institute in two, released in 2023, the majority of Chinese migrants here in Australia consume news stories from one YouTube, another one WeChat. And WeChat still remain quite dominant in terms of their news production, circulation and consumption. Another platform that is on Rise, which I just mentioned, um, which is called Red. Um, so on WeChat, people circulate news stories um, interpersonally on WeChat groups and also through a channel which which is called WeChat official account. It is a public um, it is a public feature. Um, maybe we can think about WeChat official account as um, for example equivalent to Facebook homepage. Um, so on WeChat that's um, another channel that is on the right is WeChat short videos and WeChat live streaming features. So on Reddit, it is the platform that is focused on producing and consuming short videos and images. And maybe we can think about the Red as an equivalent to, um, for example, Facebook, uh, Meta's Instagram. Mm, I see. So what kind of information that we could really see that was published about The Voice uh, in, in, with, with the focus on WeChat specifically? Um, yeah, sure. Um, um, me and my colleagues, um, Dr. Robbie Fordyce of Monash University and Dr. Uh, Luke Himsbergen at Deakin University, we have been running this long-term project, which we now call a WeCapture project. We have been monitoring and collecting public posts from WeChat, and now we are moving on to expanding our project um, to Reddit as well. We have been monitoring and collecting public posts from WeChat official accounts that focus on discussing Australian politics. The initial discussion of the voice referendum started in February this year, which was quite early, but at the time, people didn't have too much interest or people didn't have too much you know, emotional investment in such topic. And most of the time, the voice referendum was discussed in connection to for example, the most popular, the more popular topics, including Australian economy, cost of living, inflation, property price, immigration, education, etc. And towards the end of September, we started seeing disinformation, disinformation campaigns being mobilized on WeChat, and we started saying we started seeing that um, WeChat users started commenting on those posts. And unfortunately, most of their posts and most of their comments ex- explicitly said, no, we're going to vote no. Because on one hand, we don't understand this. On the other hand, it's 
too disturbing for us. Um, and mm. we have also been seeing that uh, there are no campaigns. Um, towards the end of September, we have been seeing that no campaign has been mobilized through WeChat um, short video um, feature or live streaming feature, which is far more effective um, in terms of public posts uh, through WeChat official accounts. So when it comes to the short videos of WeChat, one of the videos um, which was about vote no that we um, incorporated into our article on the conversation was that the, the short video gained, um, I thought it gained more than, um, maybe more than 3,000 views. Um, just let me double check the um, data, but I think the short video was far more effective in terms of um, the reality. It gained mm-hmm. more than 10,000 reposts mm-hmm. and more than 300 comments within 24 hours of its um, initial launch. Mm, I see. And so, Dr. Fanyang, would you consider this as a lack of information or is it more of like mis- misinformation in regards to this? I think one thing I was very curious is that why is there so many no's even though there's not much information put out there on WeChat? Um, I think it's a really um, interesting question and I've been thinking about it a lot, a lot and also like how users were Chinese migrants that engage with the discussion of the voice referendum has been changing as far as my concern. So um, towards the end of September, this information or misinformation gained much more traction than legitimate information or credible information, for example, released from um, Australian Electoral Commission. On the one hand, we had this information, mm. which was really sentimental, emotional, and, you know, like, they advocated for voting no. On the other hand, we had information um, sponsored or sponsored articles released by um, AFC, which is formal, objective, remain a professional tone. On platform, sentimental tones are more likely to draw attention as opposed to, you know, formal and objective tones. And video content is more likely to draw attention as opposed to um, textual content. So that explains one of the reasons why no campaign can dominate um, the landscape of WeChat um, towards the end of September. And also, um, there, um, as I mentioned before, Chinese migrants in Australia, they attain different educational level and social economic background and um, they stand for quite different um, political stances. And also they have different levels of being willing to accept or being willing to learn Indigenous affairs. Mm. And that is another, also another reason that why, you know, and also like there's no campaigns and disinformation. They tend to target the groups of people who are not very concerned about the issue, but confused about the issue. Because mm. I've seen comments on WeChat, I, people saying that, I don't know what it's about, I'm just going to vote no, because they don't know what it's about. Mm. So the education was not effective. The campaign 
was not that effective. Even though we have seen yes campaigns on WeChat uh, conducted by, um, for example, um, Karina Garland, um, her interview in English with um, General Otani, but the interview was in English with China's translation and it didn't gain too much traction on WeChat. And we have also seen um, the advertisement from um, Yes23, um, but also that advertisement is wrapped within articles. So you can't really measure to what extent you just would agree with those um, with very content. Mm, I see. So, do you think this is the failing of the app itself, as according to government, to a regulation, or is it a reflection of the approaches taken by the yes, no, yes and no campaigns? Well, I guess it to some extent reflect on, you know, what's going on, at least on the public space, um, online public space of China's migrant communities, and also I should probably mention that towards um, towards the date, fourteenth um, October, we have also been seeing grassroots organisations and academics, Chinese um, speaking academics, they started getting on those platforms and started organising offline events, trying to clarify those misinformation and disinformation, and trying to use their language in a much more accessible way to talk to their audience hey, this is the voice really built. But this only happened towards the very end date of the campaign. And we kind of, you know, it, it was a bit quiet, for example, in September and towards the end of the, the September. And I think it was really glad to see that, for example, the EEC and the YET campaign they started focusing on um, WeChat as one of their campaign platforms. And I think that helps, at least that helps to, you know, that helps people to understand this is what the voice referendum is about. If you want to know more about it, here's the QR code, scan the QR code and know more about it. And that also, um, as I put in my article, we, when, when it comes to campaign or education, it's very important for the government, for the public sector to understand migrant communities, they obtain different literacy for Indigenous affairs and they obtain different levels of racial literacy as well and or campaign should tailor to their one information consumption habits. For example, they are more likely to watch short videos as opposed to, you know, read articles in a formal, objective tone on which a official account. Mm. Just jumping in there, uh, Dr Young, um, that's a really interesting point you make about different levels of Indigenous literacy and also emotional literacy. Can you explain a little bit further what you mean by emotional literacy in this context? Well... I guess emotional literacy, um, I didn't really think I, I put in that exact word, but what I mean was that it's more likely for people to consume stories or um, consume stories that is, you know, delivered in an in a emotional tone rather than in a formal um, objective tone. So one thing, um, I, so when I read the article, um, 
from um, Australian Electoral Commission. I was really glad that they started their um, campaign really early on WeChat. But it's not just my personal feeling. I asked my friends here at um, China Speakers as well, and they told me that it's not the kind of language they are used to. It's actually easier for them if they can if they translate the Mandarin characters into Mandarin sentences into English, and then that sentence would read much better. <clears throat> so, I guess like they, I understand that public sectors they would have to remain a particular formal objective term in terms of information delivery. But is it what WeChat audience want? Is it what? platform users want, I would put a question mark on it. Sounds like Communications 101 to uh, be thinking about the audience, but um, yeah, I guess this is a a new area of learning in terms of political information sharing. Yeah, exactly. I I think it's a really interesting way to put it. Like for many, because we have been studying um, significant political events, um, we chat for quite a while, and I guess my colleagues um, Robert Fordyce and Luke Kinsbergen, they might um, they might share the similar kind of analysis with me as well. Like most of the time, when we look at political campaigns on WeChat, it's more like politicians they use WeChat as a much convenient tool as opposed to mass media to mobilise their voices or mobilise their votes. But in terms of interaction or engagement or communication, we didn't see that happen too much. And just a couple of other questions in relation to the level of engagement among the Chinese-Australian community. Do you feel there are other factors um, to do with particular Australian contexts that the community lives in that may also be impacting the engagement levels. I'm thinking of the racism that uh, has been experienced by the Chinese Australian community at different times, particularly over the last couple of years um, during the pandemic and so forth, and the impact of you know perhaps government policies in terms of um, Im- uh, immigration and also travel. Uh, international students were you know, highly affected by government policies. Do you think these sorts of bigger picture issues are also an influence in the community's willingness to engage with an Australian-led agenda or an Australian um, government-led agenda? Yeah, that's actually one part of the disinformation being mobilised on WeChat and Red to convince people to vote no. Because uh, I think argument, um, I actually am very hesitant about bringing it up because I really don't want to get this sort of information circulated in a broader platform. You know, my um, so I've actually seen people raising questions in terms of okay, so if we're going to have with air condition mark privilege, if we're going to have a gay privilege to indigenous communities, does that mean? that we're going to be underprivileged and we Chinese people are already underprivileged in, you know, in Australia. And this is just going to deepen this racial divide. And so there's this kind of a comment, racial divide and um, have been raised 
endorse voices that support no campaign. And I guess, like, structurally speaking, I don't... I don't want to blame on Chinese communities because I understand that Chinese communities, they are underprivileged and they are marginalized by Australian so-called mainstream hegemonic society as well. What I wanted to say that, like, I would like to bring out the structural factors that influence this sort of argument or structural factors that actually help legitimize this sort of argument. For example, for the past for the past decades, the immigration policy in Australia is that they prioritize people with wealth, people with investment initiatives and skills in Australia. And those skills are focused on um, science and technology. So you you can see that in amount Chinese migrant communities Humanity and social science are lacking. Migrant community is migrants coming from humanity and social science humanity and social science backgrounds are lacking. And that is structured by Australian um, immigration scheme that prioritize whiteness and neoliberalism. They welcome people who can provide immediate economic interest to the country. And humanity and social science are not considered as professions that can provide immediate interest to their country. Instead, human and social science are more likely to be critical to the government. And we have this group of people here in Australia, and many of them, conventionally, they would stand for the Labour Party, the Labour Party, and this voice referendum is proposed by Albanese government. So, partisan stance can also feature in their, you know, in their votes as well and in their campaigns. Thank you very much for those comments. They're really insightful and give us lots, lots to think about in the wider context of what's happening in Australia, both in terms of immigration policy, but also in the humanities sectors in our universities where, you know, fees for students have been raised and, you know, this is a a human a humanities uh, a, a vote on Saturday if uh, there ever was one. So, yeah, that's a really interesting point you made there. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Fan Young, a research fellow at Melbourne Law School and the ARC Centre of Excellence for Automated Decision Making and Society speaking about the reach of online information accessed by the Chinese-Australian community in the lead-up to the referendum vote this Saturday. You might have heard about the Community Radio Plus app, but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it. You can listen to us wherever you are, at home, work, driving, on public transport, gardening, protesting, or even in the bath. Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. I want to break free. Do you want to create safe spaces or become an employer of choice for LGBTIQA plus communities in Melbourne's north? 
Pride in the North is proud to present their inaugural summit, Beyond the Rainbow Lanyard, taking place on the 3rd of November in South Morang. Hear from diverse voices and help create change to improve the health and well-being of LGBTIQA plus communities across Melbourne's northern region, from Mitchell Shire to Hume, Whittlesea and Banyal local government areas. For more information and registration, go to www.pracc.com.au forward slash tickets. Pride in the North is a 3CR support. I want, I want to That was Women's Business by Ruby Hunter. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. It's now 8.15.
With the referendum just a few days away, First Nations people and especially those living in more remote communities have been on the forefront of many people's mind when thinking of how to vote. However, living in a remote community can come with isolation, physically as well as digitally. According to a recent research, only 57% of 1,545 First Nations communities have access to mobile devices, which points to a major gap in digital exclusion between First Nations people and the rest of the population. And Dr. Daniel F- and Dr. Daniel Featherstone, who is the lead researcher of the Mapping the Digital Gap report, is on the line with us now. Good morning, Daniel. How are you? Good, Sonera. Good to talk to you. Yes, and uh, welcome to the show. Um, so, first of all, can you just tell us a bit about how you got started working with First Nations communities in the first place? Oh, I've been working in First Nations communities since 2001. I um, took a role as the manager of uh, a remote First Nations media organisation called Ngannavara Media in Western Australia. Um, And I spent nine years working out and living in uh, a very small community called Irinju Community, um, which I was told had really good communications because they had fibre optic. It turned out the main communications was a public phone in the middle of the community that sort of rang constantly. And um, the way you had to share information between uh, each of the years or back to the, the office in was... Um, and um, when we talked to people about what they wanted, whether they wanted radio or TV services or other things, um, they said, we just want a phone that works. Mm. So I got involved in helping to set up the Ngandara Lands Telecommunications Project, um, and that took um, till 2008 before we finally got that in place. Um, But along the way, we set up IT training and Wi-Fi in communities and other things to try and um, provide people with some basic access. Mm. So I've been on a bit of a journey since then trying to help um, deal with those types of issues in other communities around the country. Yes, and 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 I'm guessing that was in the, like the mid to late 2000s, which wasn't too long ago. And you know, just before we get to like the means of um, how they com- how they choose to com- how they can communicate, um, despite living in um, very remote areas. Uh, first of all, I wanted to look at the report you took part in researching, which is called the Mapping the Digital Gap report, and it tells us about the significant gap in digital inclusion for First Nations people. And I was wondering, how significant are these problems in their day-to-day lives, and how you came to understand the scale of this issue? Yeah, so the Mapping the Digital Gap project, four-year project, um, we're going to Well, we went to 10 communities last year. We've been to 11 communities this year, hopefully 12 next year. Um, So we're looking at what changes over time in these communities. Um, And it's part of what's called the Australian Digital Inclusion Index, um, which is a national survey that gets done on digital inclusion each year. But we didn't have any data for remote communities. So the 
some of the most excluded people in the country were also not being measured to see what um, what the challenges were that related to their particular context and um, and needs. And so this project was developed and funded by Telstra as an additional project to the Australian Digital Inclusion Index um, and is being undertaken through RMIT Uni. Um, so it's a um, really to both do a survey of what um, the digital inclusion levels are across access and affordability and digital ability, but it's also to look at we do interviews and we do an audit of what's in the community and really work with um, partner organisations in each community to develop local solutions as well, what can be done as part of a local digital inclusion plan. Um, so it's really a trying to give back to the community all of the data that we collect and help them build their capacity to address the challenges that they face. Mm. And and what are some of the like means of digital communication in this in these communities? Like, what types of ways are they trying to communicate and consume information when there's a lack of access or opportunity to be digitally connected? Yeah, so it's a real mix. Um, what we know is that um, people pr primarily prefer to use a mobile phone as their main ma means of communication even where there isn't mobile coverage. So as you said, there's about 43% of the 1,545 communities around the country, communities and homelands, um, that don't have mobile coverage. Um, some of them have a public phone only. Some of them have no communications access, the very small communities and homelands. Um, some are using um, satellite for delivering like Wi-Fi that might be public access or might be just at a particular um, spot in the community. Um, so while mobile phone coverage has expanded considerably over the last 10 years, there's still a lot of those smaller communities and homelands that don't have mobile. But what we find is that about 84% of people have a mobile device, so a mobile phone or share one, and about 94% of those are on prepaid mobile meaning that they're paying sort of a premium rate for, for accessing services. Very few people are using um, fixed line or satellite services at their home, and so there's very limited household internet access. It tends to be using those personal devices and um, where, there's, where there's shared access um, and, and being on low incomes in most, you know, for most people in communities. Um, the prepaid is the most manageable way of um, ensuring that they don't you know, end up with a bill they can't afford to pay. So um, that brings with it some challenges. There's very few computers in people's homes. Um, people um, really rely on the phone for everything. So if there's um, poor service quality in some of these communities where it's patchy coverage or um, there's lots of dropouts or the there's congestion, too many people using the services. Um, it means that people end up with a, a, you know, a pretty unreliable service. For, you know, and we hear that a lot in the communities we've visited. Mm, I'm, I'm just wondering how, like, you know, why this has been the case and um, in these communities and, 
you know, if like and how like things have changed over time, you know, since you have been kind of um, keeping an eye on this issue for a long time? Look, the, the main reason why it's um, challenging in remote areas is just simply the cost of getting infrastructure out to these communities. So while the, um, you know, there, there has been a lot of improvement in mobile services, there's been some funding programs um, like the Mobile Black Spots program and Regional Connectivity program to expand mobile coverage. There's also been the NBN Skymuster satellites um, that now mean that people can access satellite services. Um, and, and now there's also the Starlink satellite services. Mm. What we find, though, is that because those services, those satellite services are postpaid, you have to pay a bill, um, there's very limited uptake of those types of um, household um, internet services. Is about 13% of people that we spoke to had SkyMaster satellite services at home. Um, and so that, that low uptake um, means that, you know, there's a, a bigger reliance on mobile coverage. But, you know, as I, as I said, we, we have seen a significant increase in mobile coverage to the point where most communities now of, you know, more than 150 people have mobile coverage around the country. It's really the smaller communities um, that don't have coverage, those small communities and homelands. And that really, part of the issue is that those funding programs uh, rely on co-investment from the, the tel telecommunications provider and unlikely to invest if there's not the return over time. So um, we've sort of reached the market failure in some of those programs it really needs more of a targeted safety net type program to make sure that people in those communities can access all of the online services. They can get, um, you know, their health and banking and welfare and all of the all of the services the rest of us take for granted. That those people in communities where they don't have face to face services, they can access those services online. Mm, and you know, we we just talked about some of the challenges and barriers to um, accessing these services. So I was um, going to ask, um, what needs to change in order to improve digital inclusions for First Nations people? Yeah, so digital inclusion isn't just about the access, um, that obviously we do need to make sure that everybody can have access to a reliable, affordable internet service um, and also phone calls, like just being able to make a phone call. So um, having a, a, a type of safety net program to ensure that those small communities aren't excluded on the basis of not having large populations um, but then it's also about the affordability of these services. So, for instance, people are paying generally, you know, thirty to sixty dollars a month um, for for their um, for a prepaid mobile. Um, but because the data uses are going up, and more and more family members are wanting their own mobile device, this is becoming quite a big expense mm. um, for the household. And so we really need more affordable prepaid services available. 
and for those um, home internet services to become more, you know, more affordable, or or have a prepaid option as well. Um, we need um, programs, digital ability, people to develop the skills and, um, you know, understanding about how to use those online services that we rely on nowadays. Um, there needs to be support at a community level, and particularly culturally appropriate training programs or support programs. So having local digital mentors who know the local language um, and can provide that support when people need it rather than just sending a, a training training officer in to do a workshop for a week and then go away again, um, that that's unlikely to work because it really needs to be what we call just-in-time support where people get the skills when, you know, get the support when they need it. Mm. Um, so there's a, a range of things, you know, the, we also look at the use of um, media services, so having First Nations media services in these communities is a critical way for people to get relevant and trusted news and information. Um, what we have seen is that television services aren't working in many of the households, um, so you know, over 50% of households across the 10 communities we visited didn't have TV services working um, because it's all via satellite um, and the equipment has failed over time. And so um, people are increasingly reliant on social media for their news and information. Right. And while that, that's good, um, it also means that they're getting a lot of misinformation. And as you referred to with the referendum going on at the moment, they're also seeing a lot of racist um, commentary coming through on the social media, and that's really mm. impacting on people's mental health. So, yeah. you know, there's a, there's a range of issues um, because of having not having those reliable access to radio and TV services. Yes, and I'm, I'm sure it's uh, something that I think people should think about um, in this. Uh, we, we should think about the situation um, going on in remote communities um especially because most of the um, native uh, sorry most of the first nations people live in these um communities that are not in the coastal area but thank you so much for coming on today i'm sorry we're running out of time um but um it was a pleasure talking to you um and yeah good <laughs> goodbye no problem, and great to talk to you, Sonera. No worries. And that was Dr. Daniel Featherstone, lead researcher of the Mapping the Digital Gap 2023 Outcomes Report, talking to us about the significant gap in digital inclusions uh, in digital inclusion for First Nations people. Um, that's all we have time today for our show. Um, join us next week, um, where we will probably discuss. Um, more um, the, the result of the voice and yeah hopefully everyone um, gets to vote by next week 3CR uh, Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program you can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street Carlton and while you're there check out Radical Coffee a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.